Welcome. It is good to be here. It's good to be anywhere. This is my first interview of someone else for this podcast, TGMBH. These ghosts must be heard. And this is a podcast to have people tell their stories about their lost loved one or ghost. Hopefully, we'll be able to empathize with a large segment of the population who have lost someone to OUD, opioid use disorder. So we have as our guests, our first guests, a lovely couple who are American, but they live in Australia. Jude Demeglio Trang and her husband, John. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're so thankful for this technology to be able to speak to you 10,000 miles away. But at least you showed me what Australia looks like. <laughs> so I could say I've been to Australia now. There you go. There you go. Jude is the owner of a landscape design company. She's a restorer of historic homes. She's a traveler, a mother of two children, author, and advocate. John was a university professor. By the way, John, what subject did you teach? Well, that's an involved story. I'll say pharmaceutical sciences. That's great, because I know you were the owner of a consulting firm that deals with this subject, pharmaceuticals, and you're an advocate, and June's kindred, June, Jude's kindred spirit. Anything more that any of you want to share about who you are? I would want to say that the reason we're in Melbourne, Australia, so much of the time, and now this year since COVID started, we were happily on the last flight from LAX to be allowed into the country uh, for people who were not citizens, is because our only surviving child is our daughter, married an Aussie, moved here 13 years ago, and had the audacity to have our two lovely granddaughters here, so who are now 10 and 12. So that's why we're here. Wow. Well, that's a good reason. So tell me a little bit about JL. Well, JL is an acronym, an abbreviation for John Life Trang. John, of course, my name. Life was my father's name. That's the Norwegian side of the story. Jude is the Italian half of the story. And he was born in uh, March 10th of 1989 and was an absolutely delightful little brother, six years younger than Johanna. Both of them, are, our life was, was focused on raising them, loving them, caring for them, watching them grow, enjoying all the little things. We have found as grandparents that we, we kind of wish that we could be grandparents first because we find that we have much less pressure regarding all of the things that go on with our two granddaughters than you do as a parent. You're, you're way too concerned about all the little things that uh, can and can't happen. And maybe we weren't concerned enough about other things that we needed to be focusing in on. Describing JL, he was... I would say in some ways like me, kind of mischievous. Of course, being a younger brother, that's part of your role is to, <laughs> is to be mischievous to your older sister. Um, and uh, as he grew up, he always liked cars, trucks, speed. Uh, not the drug. No, 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 not the drug. <laughs> <laughs> Just going fast. Yeah. That's good. Thank um, you, John. Yeah! 
Jill, what's your favorite thing about climbing? Climbing. Just climbing. Yeah. I would say seemed maybe to some people like he was an extrovert, but as he grew older, we knew and realized he was more of an introvert than we understood. So even though he could be the center of what was happening as a little kid, he, especially after going through adolescence, where your personality kind of more develops, there was more of a tendency for him to be more introverted and yet still wanting to be in the center of things. And part of that transition also was the fact that when he left sixth grade from a small private school, we put him into the public system in Tucson and he went into a middle school with 800 kids he'd never seen before. So all of a sudden he was the new kid and was the small fish in a very big pond where in his little private school, he was the big fish in a very small pond. So a lot of things went into, I think, the dynamics that along with the change that happens when you go through puberty. What would you say was your favorite trait about JL? Well, yeah, I mean, he was exceptionally intelligent. He was, uh, what I would say, winsome. He could basically win any argument with anybody. Friends of his that we got to know very well after his death shared many stories of how they would enter into debates with him and come out behind, even if they knew they were right, you know. John, that's a great answer. Okay. It sounds like someone I, I know. <laughs> Your He's, own son? Yes. It, it's, it's uncanny. The two traits you said, winsome, intellectual, that was Zach. This brings to mind an encounter in my basement with Zach and my wife. His bandmate and good friend, Sean, tells the story of how Zach, always using his intellect and sarcastic wit, would have the last word and get a laugh. We're playing music in the basement. You know, we practice here every week. And so we're all playing and Zach didn't want to play something. So he grabbed a book, I think like Madame Bovary, and laid down, but like with his head on the bass drum. And his mom comes downstairs and saw him doing that. She's like, what are you doing? You have your head in a bass drum? You're gonna go deaf. She was obviously angry because we were like 15. It's a stupid thing to do. She was like, yeah, you won't think it's so funny when I throw you out. He's like, you're gonna kick out your deaf, disabled son? But that was Zach, you know? It was, <laughs> he, he always had an answer. It's bizarre, and I get a lot of stories that I've collected already, and they always mention about their son or daughter's intelligence, and they're kind of like, my son was like counterculture. That's what he was like. He'd like to jab at people just for fun, you know, and they tried to get him back. He was always one step ahead. That is JL to a T. Yeah, it's amazing. So, there it is. And, and the other thing, he was very good looking. He was a good friend. And I think um, mm. we homeschooled our kids, Johanna, until she went to eighth grade and JL until he went into this little private school at fourth grade. And we didn't do it as many people in the 80s and 90s did for religious reasons or political reasons. We did it because we wanted to have closer relationships with our kids. And because of John's occupation as a professor, we had a lot of ability to travel. Public schools in the States are pretty bad about wanting to let kids out of school to go travel. So we did that. We had a good, close relationship with 
our kids. And JL, after he died, that was one of the things that we heard a lot from his friends. They all thought that JL was their best friend and that he was a good listener and that he gave them good advice and that he was very loyal to almost a fault. You could be describing my son. Isn't that wow. interesting? He just liked to have fun. He was <sighs> big heart. He had a really big heart. Yeah. Try this one on. Because JL was very, very bright and persuasive, I believe part of the struggle was associated with his ability to persuade himself that he could deal with this. He could handle this. When you are eloquent and uh, can speak persuasively, I think that's a potential big source of trouble because you can fool yourself. Just to echo this again, this is really eerie. Um, <laughs> my son went on a website where a person who was, I guess, a functional heroin addict, if that's possible. Maybe he just, I don't even know, but he kind of thought the same way as Zach. He thought, oh, this guy's doing it. So it's really like insane that you're the first <laughs> interview I'm doing. And wow, they could have switched places and it would have, been, it would have been the same outcome, regrettably. He had a good sense of humor, you would say? Very good yeah. sense of humor. As a after high school kid, he was trying to get into the DJ thing, the spinning discs and that whole bit. So right. after he died and we went through his phone, a lot of the songs, even though they were more hip hop and rap, the words were thoughtful and meaningful. We were, you know, we, as, that, as we yeah. slowed down and listened to the words, mm -hmm. because then after JL died, they meant more to us, right? Everything started to take on bigger meaning and more importance. Uh, I'll just say ditto, because <laughs> Zach was in a band. In fact, when you hear the intro to the podcast, his one, I think his best friend who was in the band with him did the music for us, for the podcast. So that's the intro and the outro music. Yeah, so it's very weird. I'm telling you this. Maybe we switched places at times. I don't know. I, it's it's well, unbelievable. Well, I think I think also our kids and us as families are a certain demographic that the opioid crisis hit. And what I explain to people, especially here in Australia, is that I feel like there are two worlds of the opioid epidemic in the United States. The one is the Rust Belt unemployment, poverty, and the soothing of those anxieties and stresses that then the pill mill doctors in Florida and the, you know, that whole thing that American pain documented. And then there's the more affluent aspect of Americans who our kids grew up, had too much, had many advantages. Too many choices. Too well. many choices. For our son, trying opiates was the beginning. It was just for fun. It Experimenting. And so that's why our stories in some ways are so similar. I remember growing up in the Bronx, New York. There are some places in the Bronx you, couldn't, you shouldn't go to. South Bronx was notorious. Harlem, every borough had its bad neighborhood, and bad neighborhood meant people of color. The issue that I find is that this didn't become a thing until it hit Caucasians. Let them stay there, the brown and black people, who cares? We'll, 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 we'll just arrest them, throw them in jail, you know, catch and release, and the whole deal about the penal institutions, it was an industry. I mean, they've discussed this, you know, up the yin-yang. 
now that it's hitting every demographic, older people, younger people, and now I think what's worse is the fentanyl stuff. I mean, it's so just, they're ahead of the game, these guys that are trying to kill our children. These people are monsters to me. But then again, you have to say, well, they didn't have choices, some of them, to get a job or had no parental role models. So that, you know, it's, you just can't blame. The blame goes on society, the unequal society that we live in. Exactly. And it's around the world. I want you to tell JL's dark story into drugs, if you would kindly do so. Well, I always tell people JL was an alcoholic first, and I firmly believe that alcohol is the gateway drug, not marijuana. Every one of JL's friends that I know of, their first mind-altering substance was alcohol. And for most of them, it was 11, 12, 13, very young. Wow. That was true of JL. Another friend of his that when he was 11 to 12 that he met, their family was into pot, which we didn't know. And he introduced JL into pot. And he told us now, he said, yeah, a lot of those nights when I was over at your house, we'd sneak out after you went to sleep and go sit in the garage and smoke pot. But he said, you know, JL really didn't like pot. It didn't do anything really for him. So that was 11, 12, 13. Right. When JL went into middle school into at seventh grade, he became friends with other kids that were also right. transplants to that school. One friend that he became close with was being raised by a single mom. They spent a lot of time together, dirt bike riding, paintballing, four-wheel driving, I mean, J.L. was driving from the time he was 12 or 13. 14. 14, really? <laughs> uh, well, what's a few years? But I mean, you know, out in the boonies, which you yeah. do in Arizona, sure. right? What we didn't know at the time was that this friend's dad was in prison, white-collar crime, for being one of the big drug pins, kingpins in Tucson. Right. And the other thing about Tucson that made it a little bit different was Southern Arizona, Southern California is right across the border from Mexico, and they are the drug corridors. Yep. When JL started experimenting, well, first it was oxys, which we didn't know. I don't know where they got it from somebody's medicine cabinet. That was the first opioid that was used, which is, of course, a very similar story. And that was about 14? That was, yeah, I would say when he was a freshman. At 15, he was at a party. His friends older brothers who were seniors were smoking and come to find out it was black tar heroin we had never heard of it we didn't know this at the time but you know when you're 15 smoking is a cool thing to do this is just another another kind of smoke so it was all this time of experimentation and he thought well hey these kids are over in the corner and they're just smoking something it can't be that bad right and of course it is you know worse than that bad and so that was jl's entree into heroin he turned 16 we knew something was off he there was a real personality 
change, a lot of aggravation. He was angry that he couldn't stay out on school nights till whenever he wanted to, and he had an 11 o'clock curfew. We thought, my gosh, we have been so lenient, like compared to the family I grew up in. But there was also this balance. John, he remembers riding his bicycle all around L.A., Nobody was worried about anything. His parents weren't worried about him getting into drugs or being kidnapped or murdered. It was a different world. But John remembered that freedom and we thought, well, you know, we don't want to be overprotective. We tried to allow a lot of freedom. And and of course, in hindsight, we look back and go, we should have been a little more connected to his friend's parents. Mm. We should have known that when he went to a party and said, oh yeah, the parents are home. We should have gotten out of the car and walked in made sure the parents were home. Well, later we find out that the kids were all in the guest house down the hill. Or the parents were in San Diego. (laughs) Or the parents were asleep. There was a whole culture that our kids grew up in in society. And I think that Sam Quinones in Dreamland captures these thoughts perfectly. There was this lack of community, the aunts and uncles and family and friends and neighbors who all knew what everybody's kids were doing. And if your kid was smoking behind their house, They would yank them up by the ear and bring them down, right? That was not our child's culture. It's funny you mention this because in the Bronx, it was the same thing. Yep. And everybody knew everybody's business. We weren't afraid of being kidnapped. I mean, it's the same thing. It's a, it was like a commune in a sense, not the hippy dippy kind. Right. The Bronx commune. That's, you know, I often look at my own parenting and you're allowed to roam. Zach never did, didn't even drink through high school and then he then he went to college (laughs) he wasn't a drinker he wasn't a smoker but then he got turned on to weed i guess somewhere in college it's the same process i guess that jl went through just a little later yeah yeah you know i didn't even think the times he came home smashed or you know not himself i never thought about heroin harris when we were growing up and i think this is important the heroin that when you thought of it, it was the end of the line drug for drug users. When you know, were in, growing up. Yep. In the, 50s. in the 70s. It was only for wealthy people, musicians. A you very know, small subset of society. Exactly. If you wanted to find it, you would have had to really look hard. You, It was not something that was easily available. It was reserved for the end of the line drug users. When you think about like when Ray Charles died and they talked about his heroin use through his life. Their heroin was not our kids' heroin. Just like the 70s pot, our kids' pot was not their parents' pot. It's been genetically modified 10 to 20 times stronger. All of this is a new modern problem. And our kids have grown up in this very, very different culture than what we or our parents could have ever imagined. I firmly believe JL would have been battling alcoholism had he been born a generation before. But I don't believe he would have died of a heroin overdose because it just wasn't available. Right. When he was having these problems at the age of 14, did the school reach out to you at all? By the time JL was introduced to Hoxie's and then uh, BT, it was actually easier for kids and cheaper 
to obtain black tar heroin. They had their cell phones. They had their, their guide narrow would deliver it to the older kids in the school. The older kids in the school would, would pass out the little wrapped up foil packages. Just pragmatically, if you wanted to get the effect of oxys, which were very expensive and a little bit uh, trickier to obtain, sure. well, heck, just smoke some beet black tar. The school then did not. There was, well, Jude, tell this story. Baby. So we did not know when JL was using oxys, especially at 14, 15, you're thinking of adolescent changes, hormones. There's a lot that you write off. You have to remember, so this was 2004. We hadn't heard about people using oxys. I had had probably after surgery, what was it called? Percocet right, for yep, surgery. But yep. the word oxy and all of that, 2003, four, five, we hadn't heard of it. And neither then had we heard about black tar heroin. So when JL's behavior became really noticeably off. Yeah, that's what I would say. And, and aggressive. There were two instances when JL said to me, you make me so mad. It makes me feel like I want to be one of those kids that kills their parents. <laughs> and that came out two times, two separate times. And I knew it was like, is my child in there? Where's my child? At this point, you know, he's sleeping a lot into the daytime, staying up late at night. So after one of these episodes, I just, I was walking around the house one day, John was at work and just going, oh God, please, something is wrong with John life. I don't know what it is. Something is wrong. Please, please help me find out. I walked into his room on his desk. I see this envelope and the address from his friend. And I think, well, that's weird. Why would his friend mail him a letter? And the letter's out of the envelope. And so I unfold it and look at it. And this friend is saying, JL, you really need to watch out with that BT stuff or you'll end up like I am. If that stuff will kill you if you're not careful. And I'm going, BT, what the heck is he talking about? So I get online and I start looking up what the heck drug is BT. And I'm looking and looking. And the only thing I come up with is black tar heroin. So I pick up the phone and I call his friend's mom and I say, okay, I got, we got this letter from your son and I want to know what this is. She said, uh, are you sitting down? And I said, no, but I will. She said, have you found any little balls of tinfoil? I said, yeah. She said, go grab a couple of them. I said, I thought they were from making fireworks because <laughs> we also did that in our family, my Italian pyrotechnics people. I opened this up and there's this black, you know, marking inside these little wads of foil. She goes, I have to tell you that's heroin and BT is black tar heroin. She told me all about it. And what was really frustrating, the end of May, there had been a drug bust at school We'd never heard about it. Hmm. A bunch of girls, several girls, were caught in one of the bathrooms smoking black tar heroin. They were from wealthy families. They'd been carted off to expensive recovery programs out of state. But the school never told us anything. Never. I said, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you call me? She said, I never thought 
JL would be involved in this. He's so smart and you guys are such good parents. That was, I mean, what a day. We'll, We'll never forget that day. And we were sitting in the house. Our son drove up. He's sitting in the truck, all the windows up, but the truck's been turned off and he slumped over the steering wheel. And I went and tapped on the window and he just, you know, startled. He was nodding off already. Mm. We, you know, brought him in the house, told him what we'd heard. And he said, no, no, I don't. And then we said, JL, you can't get around it. Here's the evidence. Here's, and he just wept. He was frightened. Mm. He was so sorry, so full of shame. That was the beginning. I don't have to tell you the story, but almost the exact same thing happened with Zach. So I think this story that we are sharing is repeated thousands of times. As the affluent neighborhood in Tucson, the last thing the school wanted was to have vibes out there that the kids at the school are doing heroin. This dovetails, of course, with the incredible stigma and shame that's associated. That's why the schools, I'm sure even to this day, are probably disinclined to engage the parents about these kind of topics. It's the same out here where I live. They're not gonna, unless the police come in and and bust somebody, no one's gonna know. Of course, the guidance counselors and the social worker and psychologists, you know, trying to help these kids, but it's just, they're not equipped. We made the decision with John Life. We, we pursued doctor, the pediatrician, the other doctors in town. They had to, you know, search for what you do for a teenager who's addicted to heroin. I mean, they were shocked. Yeah. We didn't have $70,000 for a month-long program uh, other than mortgaging our house. And when we found there in Tucson that there was a outpatient recovery program specifically for teenagers, we opted for that. JL... As far as recovery programs, he went through that. He stayed clean for two and a half years until he had an accident and was prescribed opioids as a freshman in college. And that started a relapse. So he was never in an inpatient until in that next couple of years in college, he was into a a rehab. He did detox, had to detox several times, and then did again outpatient programs and then into a sober living, but he only did one inpatient recovery program. Okay, so I noticed in your story on the website about the spring of 2014, he was going to another sober home. And before that, you guys told him, just try harder, which I would have said the same thing because we at the time and you at the time did not know that it's not something he wanted to do, It's not a a matter of his character at all. And that ties in with the stigma and the shame. I mean, I didn't tell anybody what happened. This is 2006. You know, we were were in the vanguard. Probably people knew. I think I told the principal. I was friends with him. Just my, you know, close family, my close friends knew he was struggling. To me, that, that is the biggest shame of all, the stigma. You said that he felt ashamed when this happened. That's how strong the stigma is. You love him unconditionally. You would never be ashamed of him, but people don't get this. How did that moment 
when he felt shame, how did that affect him besides making him cry and your interactions after that? Well, it was an incredibly difficult time. We could tell that he was broken. What I find astonishing is that as a pharmaceutical scientist who studied uh, narcotics, I wasn't casual or nonchalant about the fact that this was an opiate. This was actually heroin, the opiate. But because we didn't think this could actually really be happening, we didn't think that our son actually could be addicted to not only a mind-altering, but a life and body-altering substance. We felt that this short-term outpatient program, that was not just because it was the best that we could do, but we actually thought it would be very, very helpful. And for JL's feelings, uh, he, like every son, he, he loved us. He wanted to please us. He was devastated that these choices he had made took him to the place of being in this addicted situation. And he knew that it was something that would bring shame or the stigma associated with it. So all of those things were going on in his heart, I know. We were very, very happy to be introduced to the program and then experience those two and a half years of, of sobriety as a high school student. We underestimated the power of opioids. As did I. I mean, we would have sold our house if we'd understood. Mm. We would have lived on the street if we would have understood the power of opioid addiction. His addiction doctor in later years when he was in college and we were dealing with this full blown and he was using IV, the addiction doctor said, opioid addiction is the cancer of addictions. It's pernicious. It doesn't leave you. And I think the fear and the worry in our kids' hearts and minds was hard for us to grasp. Only they knew how addicted they were and the tentacles that this opioid addiction had. It changes your brain chemicals. Yep. And the difference from opioids to meth, cocaine, and other drugs, not to minimize those addictions, but opioids affect your brain chemicals and your body. It's the both. It's the actual physical as and, well as a psychological. Right. Even though we knew, you know, the big H, heroin, it's actually a lifelong struggle. Yep. This is a dangerous, deadly drug. The shame and stigma, when he relapsed, he was not about to tell us. Right. Not about sure. for two reasons. He was ashamed. Secondly, he didn't want us to try to get him fixed right. by sending him away or again. I, mean, I can't tell you how many times he went through withdrawals trying to beat this. Well, and he didn't want to hurt us. He didn't. He wanted to try and take care of it. That's ditto. Ditto. Without the stigma, would something have changed? Absolutely. I mean, that's why we wrote our book. Right. That's why we speak out. That's why we're saying their names, voices from the opioid crisis. When JL died, we had not heard of any of his friends or anybody having died of a heroin overdose. We knew that a couple kids had died of a drug overdose, but there were no public funerals or memorials. Hmm. We, I mean, it was like they, they dropped off the edge of the right. planet. <laughs> there was a flat earth and That's they it. went over That's the it. edge. Unknown causes. Unknown causes, which of course you still hear today. The day JL died, when we got home that afternoon, we immediately went to his Facebook page and our Facebook page, and we put up 
John Life died of a heroin overdose this morning. And we said from that moment, we are going to say what happened to him because if we hide it and if we are ashamed of it, it means he deserves to be shamed. The, absolutely not because we knew and saw how hard he fought. It's funny that it took us, it took me, my wife still doesn't like to talk about it. Her grieving is one way, mine is another way. We just went on with our, you know, we're Jewish, so we had seven days of mourning. After the eighth day, I went back to work. She went back to work. Wow. Which is even more weird. I worked with adolescents. Mm. And she worked with college students. We didn't say a word. It took me till 2014. After, you know, I, I go to a shrink regularly. I didn't tell anyone, I didn't say anything about it. And then I went to this grieving group called GRASP. Have you heard of GRASP? Mm -hmm. I just wanted to know how I was doing in the grieving process. I didn't think about doing anything. And then about a few months later, I woke up and said, I'm going to do a film about Zach. I don't know where that came from. It must have been from him because he was into film. He actually took courses at Adelphi. He even made a film. That's when I started to be able to say, when I heard it from other people, in the meetings, you say, my, my name is Harris, and my son Zach died of an overdose, and everybody went around the table. It took me uh, till then to start, I, I can't hide, I got to tell people. Probably they knew, but that's when I started doing what I'm, the path I'm on now. And for you, your son, you said died in 05? 06. 06, and so this was uh, almost 10 years later that you began to be vocal and active about this. That's right. I just had, I guess that you're in that auto mode because it wasn't happening a lot. No, well, it, what, what was happening was that nobody was saying that it was happening. Right. We had other good friends who we didn't know. Their son was our daughter's age. Their son was six years older. He was one of the first people from our son's high school. He died of an opioid mm. overdose, but he was in Florida at the time. And the parents, she was one of the first people to respond to us when we started putting it on Facebook about JL dying. And she it was like she breathed, exhaled, because nobody was talking about it. If that had happened to us in 06, I don't know that we would have oh, spoken man. about it. What does that tell you, Harris? That tells you how shameful, of course, how stigmatizing. To have your child in an upper middle class family die of a heroin overdose. What on earth did you do wrong? Mm. Right? And of course, we, meaning our community, we probably did that for who knows how long in our brains. You know, I write about the runaround loop. If I had done that, I should have did this. I shouldn't have done that. I, that would stay with me for a while. It was amazing how I got kind of out of that I just started watching video because I took a lot of video when he was a, a kid with my can heavy camcorder on my shoulder you know, remember those days yeah <laughs> so I took a ton and that's what I did after he died I just watched when I got down I would just he made me laugh he made me cry he made me laugh so that was the way I dealt with it for a long time you know work coaching watching the kids that's probably a good <clears throat> therapy in a sense when I think about it because what you saw was that you were an involved parent 
You weren't an absent father. You weren't beating your kid. You know, you weren't around sleeping around with everybody in the neighborhood. You were an involved, intentional parent. And I have to say, John was definitely braver at this than I was. He would go into his office and I'd hear him playing some of Jail's songs or watching videos of when Jail was young. And then he'd be weeping. And I, and I just, I wouldn't go there. I felt like I would fall apart. And then finally, a friend said to me, you know, if you don't cry those tears, they're just building up inside. If they're there, you got to let those out. You got to let those feelings out. Why do you think people believe and uphold the stigma? You know, where does it come from, in your opinion, still to this day? Still to this day is exactly right. I can't tell you how many people, even people we know, who a child will die and they'll still say, well, it was, you know, due to an accident and then medication. They just won't say. Could it be their own ego about their parenting? Absolutely. In the common mindset, dying from a drug overdose, a heroin overdose, only happens to losers. When your son, who was clearly not a loser, who was extremely intelligent, had everything going for him, is struggling with this type of addiction, and then eventually dies, well, that's the last thing you want to do is, is go there and, and, and put him in that category of loser. And if he's not a loser... The only other option is you're a loser. Right. Or you totally screwed up. Yeah. You know, I spent many, many months, years to this day thinking back about this little thing that I did, that little thing that I did. Sure. I wish I hadn't done this when he was three. I wish I hadn't done this when he was four. I wish we hadn't put him in the public school in seventh grade. You know, there was just a, a litany of things that you beat yourself over the head with. We didn't understand the intense pressure that's on kids in this current generation. It's the fact that they have so much information available to them and they do have the opportunity to go and you know pursue a number of different things and so all of these things flood the kids minds and for jl it would be very hard for him to settle down and relax right. jude is much like that i don't have that problem i can sleep <laughs> <laughs> heroin alcohol those were ways for him to just deal with the intense pressure that life brings you know what's funny you talk about alcoholism like jude said before it's totally like the minor leagues compared to heroin. The thing about it, it's that it's so accepted drinking in our society, spring break. Why are we doing this, glamorizing, drinking a lot? Because you don't know if your genetic makeup is prone to addiction. Exactly. exactly. And that's what people don't understand to this day. The genetic predisposition, I think, is what takes the average kid. So JL had a, a lot of his friends tried oxys and then some of them BT heroin. It, it wasn't their thing. We had a one-year memorial with JL's friends. We heard stories about how there was the cocaine crowd and the opiate crowd and the pot crowd. Yet there was about 10 to 20 percent that while everybody else could try it and go, eh, you know, no big deal. There were the 10 to 20 percent that couldn't put it down. 
and every single one of them came from families like ours. My mother's side of the family, alcoholism. John's grandfather on his mother's side, card-carrying alcoholic. Every one of the kids who have the addictions that latched onto them have the same story. Do you think my son wanted to be a heroin addict? He absolutely did not want to be. There are reasons that people do things. And John always says this to me, it's not an excuse, but there's a reason. It's a reason. And human behavior does make sense. People don't do things just for no reason. To think that that's unusual is a mistake. Right. Because that in itself makes people feel like, then I'm a bad person, which is that whole stigma thing. That's it. How, how do we move forward in confronting stigma? What do you think? Exactly what you're doing right now is a huge step. It is talking. It is policy change. Not being embarrassed about the fact that this has occurred. Good. We are attempting to get as involved as possible with public speaking. There is a, a Rethink Addiction program on now. There is an Overdose Awareness Day. Is it the 1st of October? No, uh, August 31st. August International. 31st, International Overdose Awareness Day. So there are many different avenues. As this begins to take hold, society will be willing at least to open up to the fact uh, that they should be considering drug addiction in a different light. What about MAT? Mm. Oh, that's our biggest regret, Harris. In December of 2013, two friends overdosed. The young man died. The young woman was resuscitated. JL came to us and wanted to get clean. And he said, I never want to use opioids again. In response to those deaths, he drank heavily. He was staying at our house because he got kicked out of the sober living home. So we go to the addiction doctor and he said to us, this young man cannot overdose again because if he does, he will die. He felt that John Life should be on Suboxone. Well, here comes the public health issue. You talk about what policies can change. The reason that we never also shared why John Life was having addiction issues was that our health insurance had no coverage for substance use disorder because that's covered under mental health. And at that point, they didn't have to cover that and pre-existing conditions. So if he had said that he had an opioid heroin addiction, he would have been dropped from our insurance. Our insurance also didn't pay for Suboxone. By this time, you have we were frustrated. We thought he just needed to try harder, do 12 steps harder. And we said, we're not paying for Suboxone. You figure it out, just work harder. That's our biggest regret to this day. Mm. The whole thing of medicated assisted treatment, I absolutely, we absolutely know he would be alive today. Everything now, it's science. One of the young men that JL met in the good sober living home is still alive and still on Suboxone. Now, that's not an optimal case scenario, right. but- But he's alive. The, the bottom line that Jude and I have realized is that you cannot recover from addiction if you're dead. Exactly. That's the bottom line. Tell the audience about your book. Mm. Mm -hmm. There you go. Opiate Nation came out of John and I started the day our son died to keep a journal and to write in it every day for a year. It was really our therapy. It was our sanity. 
we would just write if it was one line or if it was two pages, how we felt that day. We had never experienced anything like this. At the end of the year with that journal, we also had this one year memorial gathering with his friends. We knew that that had helped us process our son's death and the grief, just getting it out. Somebody said, you know, you need to put this in a book. You need to tell this story. I knew that if somebody had shared their story a few years before us, we might not be in this situation. I did feel like our regrets were important. And even though we were told, you know, regrets don't get you anywhere, they inform what you do in the future. And if my regrets can help somebody else change what they do and how they think, then I'm happy to own up to the things I did that I think were big mistakes. Through one of my daughter's business associates, she came up to me later and said she helps authors get their books to press. So we did that. She used her team. So even though we're self-published, she got us to that point. Opiate Nation is our love letter to our son about his life, kind of our tool for advocacy. It's what we can say here. We're saying this. Something needs to change. The loss of a child is just wrong. When your dad dies or your mom dies, they've had a good life. But when your son or daughter die, it's just a whole different deal. You want to know that not only was their life meaningful and of great value, but you want to do the most you can possibly do to bring even more meaning to this. And our desire now is that this story, that his story, just like you and your son, you want to see the changes made that will influence and save lives. And we are thrilled to say dozens of stories already from not only his dear friends who are alive in in some instances specifically because of what they experienced through his death, but now as the feedback comes back with the book as well. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it very much. If you want to learn more and hear future episodes, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at These Ghosts Pod. And take a look at our website, VoicesFromTheOpioidCrisis.com, and share your own if you like. And as Zach always said, peace out.